Good morning, Lone Oak Baptist Church. How's everyone doing? I want to teach you something real quick. If you can, repeat after me. Hoşgelden. In Turkish, that's a, a, just a friendly welcome. And it is my privilege and honor to, to welcome uh, my Turkish pastor and friend, Ramzan Arkan. So if you can, uh, just give him a friendly Lone Oak. Hoşgelden. Hoşbulduk. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me again to your church. It is a privilege for me to come here and share what God is doing in Turkey. And I visited you guys two years ago, and uh, I am just here to say thank you so much for your support and for your prayer, because I believe what God is doing in Turkey, you are also part of that. Because of your prayer, because of your support, we were able to do much things. And my name is Ramazan, which means is Ramadan. I came to Christ from Islamic Turkish background. And I have a family, uh, my wife and my kids. And my wife, she's from Akron, Ohio. She's a Buckeye. Sorry for that. I have two sons, Joshua and Levi. They are 13 and 10 years old, and we live in Turkey. I'm pastoring the uh, Turkish church in Antalya, Turkey, and our church is doing really great this last, uh, especially uh, four years, and we're growing because the Turkey is not doing well. As a country, there's lots of problems. There is inflation is going so high. There's big economic crisis, lots of uh, unjust things happening in Turkey. There's a lots of also corruption happening in Turkey because of those problems and because we have also the Islamic government that they are leading the country in a bad ways. Lots of people actually became a disillusion on Islam and they are looking for something new, something new hope. And some of those people that they are looking for something new, they are coming to also church and hear the gospel message. And as a church, our vision is to spread the gospel message to all over Antalya and Turkey because uh, uh, Turkey is a country which uh, population is 85 million, but there is only eight to 9,000 Turkish Christian in whole country. If you look at that from the Christian perspective, it is a very sad story because if you look at the Bible, you'll see that many places that mention in the Bible, it's in Turkey. But Christianity disappeared over the years and uh, but praise the lord god never forgot this land and 40 years ago people started coming to christ from the turkish background and turkish church started and now we have lots of churches in turkey and our church is in antalya turkey which is on the south part of turkey god gave us a lot of opportunity for this last two years to share the gospel with many people we did a lot of outreach activities one of the outreach activities we did on christmas and easter time we reach out 1500 people during just those two services and they heard the gospel message and we gave them to New Testament. And also we had 13 people baptized this year during the Easter time. We baptized these 13 people and they're all coming from Islamic background to Christ. And God is working and church is growing. And thank you. 
And we see that church is growing. We just didn't want to stay as one church in 2016. We, start our, uh, we started our second church in the uh, east part of Antalya. But also during the Easter time, we, uh, this year we established the third church location on the west of Antalya. Now we have three churches that we are serving the Lord and sharing the gospel in Antalya, Turkey. And one of the uh, things that I am asking you to pray is pre please pray for our missionary families because one of the problems that we are facing by government, government sees that church is growing in Turkey and they cannot come and shut the church off and they, they cannot close the church and also they cannot put me in jail because I'm a Christian or uh, they cannot kick me out of the country because I am a Turkish citizen and uh, but one of the way that what they do is they see that the one of the reason that church is growing in Antalya Turkey and also other parts of Turkey because the missionaries that comes from the Western world to serve the Lord and what they do is now they started kicking out the missionaries and they label them as a national threat for our security. And last two, uh, four years, they kicked out 187 missionary families, most of them from U.S. And we lost two families, but one of the family that we lost just uh, two months ago, this missionary couple that they've been with us from America uh, 16 years. They were faithful workers and they did very good work. And but now uh, they cannot enter the Turkey. That's really affected Turkish church. And please pray for us because we have four Baptist family in our church that they are uh, helping us. And there's four also Baptist single people for, in our church that they are helping us in a many different ways. And please pray that they can stay in Turkey. And please pray that our ministry can grow more. And also one of the update that I wanted to give you, you know that in February 6th, we face a big earthquake in Turkey. That was one of the biggest earthquakes that we faced last hundred years. And thousands of uh, buildings knocked down during the earthquake. And the area that happened in the east part of Turkey, 13 million affected by this earthquake. Half a million people, close to half a million people die. And we, as a Turkish church, uh, try to bring uh, relief help to the earthquake zone. When we started uh, this relief help, we just had $2,000 to help. But we end up now uh, bringing help $450,000. Like the two fishes, five loaves of bread, Jesus multiply. And because of the support, because of the prayers, like you faithful guys. And thank you so much for supporting and praying for us. God bless you all. I want us to pray uh, for Ramazan and for... And for the church in, in Turkey, specifically on Talia. Uh, before I do, um, if once you leave on the, um, go through these double doors, and if you go to the missions tool um, uh, table, you'll find some, uh, you'll find a prayer card um, of their family. Make sure you get that and put that on your, on, on your fridge and remind you to pray. And then also you can get further connected um, with them, learn more about their um, church, their ministry. And then also you can pick up a book. Uh, and inside this book is, is just testimonies of, of, uh, of 
men and women from, from the local church there. Um, so let's, let's pray. Uh, God, we love you. Uh, we thank you that you love us, that you care for us. God, we pray for, for Ramazan and for his family. We pray for the ministry of, um, of, of the church in Antalya. God, we pray for, uh, for the church as a, uh, as a whole in Turkey, that, um, that they'd be bold in sharing the gospel, taking the gospel to, to, the, to the ends of the earth and, and um, throughout Turkey, uh, that your name would be made known, uh, that you would be glorified. In your name that we pray, amen.
Good morning, Lone Oak First Baptist Church. So good to be with you. So appreciate Pastor Ramazan sharing his story. Isn't that amazing the way God is working around the world? And we continue to pray for James and Abby for a few details to be finalized. We're praying those will happen this month so that they can uh, go on the mission field as well. I invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 3. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Ruth. I'll be preaching Ruth 3 tonight. I'll be, I'm sorry, today I'll be preaching tonight on the series through 1 Timothy. Then I'll be preaching next week on Ruth chapter 4. And then the following week, I know you're very excited. Dr. Thomas will be here as your new senior pastor. And I know you're excited uh, to have him here in, in two, uh, two weeks. When I was a senior in college, I worked at a radio station doing a morning show. And to do this morning show, I had to get up every morning, my senior year of college, at 5 o'clock in the morning. Now, I'm not a morning person, and my wife will attest that to wake me up in the morning, I need an alarm clock that sounds like a garbage truck backing up in your uh, bedroom. And I lived with these uh, two roommates in this house just a block away from the radio station. I remember this one morning waking up, and I roll over, and I see those three dreaded numbers, five, zero, zero, just staring at me. And I roll out of bed, and I get in the shower, and I put my clothes on, I get in my truck, and I drive to work, and I walk into work, and there was one of those clocks on the wall that takes the single AA battery, you know what I'm talking about, and the, the battery died because the clock was stuck on 2.30, and I remember thinking, I wish it was 2.30, that'd be awesome. And I go in the studio, and I get all the news, weather, sports, everything I need to do the show that morning, and the phone rings. I pick up the phone. Now, this is pre-cell phone, so it was a handheld phone. I pick up the phone, and on the other end, I hear a snicker. And the snicker turns into a giggle. And the giggle turns into a full-blown laugh as I hear my roommates on the other end of the line saying, What time is it? And I look at the clock on the wall and realize it was not dead. It was, in fact, 2.30 in the morning. And my roommates had set my alarm clock ahead by three hours. <laughs> Not just my alarm clock, but every clock in the house. The clock on my computer, the clock on the microwave, the clock on the stove. They got in my truck and changed the clock in my truck. And I went to work at 2.30 in the morning. It's not that funny. I learned that day to never trust your roommates. And in fact, that day forward, I became pretty untrusting of most people in my, my life. I don't know about you, but who do you trust? In our passage of Scripture today, we're going to see a picture of Ruth trusting in a mighty way. As we go through chapter 3, you're going to see Naomi, Ruth, and then Boaz each take an action. And then we're going to see at the end how God's action is weaved throughout the entire story. 
In case you're just joining us, uh, chapter 1 of Ruth, we told the story of a guy named Elimelech. He's got a wife named Naomi. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion. And because of a famine in Bethlehem, they move to Moab where they have food. There in Moab, Elimelech dies, and his sons, Malon and Kilion, marry Moabite women. Their names were Orpah and Ruth. But over this 10-year period, both Malon and Kilion die. And we are drawn to these three widowed women, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And the question is, what are they going to do to survive? Orpah decides to move back in with her family. And Ruth tells Naomi, wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And she makes the journey with Naomi back to Bethlehem. And Naomi is very bitter. She's very angry over what God has done in her life. She says, don't call me Naomi, which means sweetness. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And there in chapter 2, Ruth starts to glean grain from the fields. And she just so happens to walk into the field of a man named Boaz. And he is so gentle and kind and protective and caring. He's caring for the immigrant caring for the widow, and we see them start to maybe start a relationship. But nothing happens at the end of chapter 2. And now we come to chapter 3. And first of all, we see Naomi's plan. Naomi's plan. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked is a relative of ours. Now, I've learned in the past two weeks that um, while I would pronounce that word Boaz, here in Western Kentucky, there's some that would call it Bose. Or if you live in that town, perhaps it's Booze, is what I've heard. So I'm not sure if Naomi called him Boaz or Bose, but regardless, she says this guy's a relative. That He's a kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer. And here's what that meant. In Leviticus chapter 25, it says that this is a specially defined role in Israeli family life, that he was responsible to buy back land that had been forfeited. He was responsible to buy a family member out of slavery. In Numbers chapter 35, it says he's responsible to be the avenger. If someone's, uh, if their family member was murdered, he's to make sure justice was carried out. In Deuteronomy 25, it says he was responsible to carry on the family name by marrying a childless widow. The kinsman redeemer was responsible for the person's property and posterity of the family. And though deceased, Elimelech had the right to have his family line continue. And so the kinsman redeemer, it was his role to help make that possible. Boaz, as a relative, had the opportunity to continue Elimelech's line by marrying Naomi or Ruth. Naomi continues with her plan. She says, tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor is a place where farmers would go to thresh their grain. Uh, Just in case you've not threshed grain in a while, that process was like they would go on top of a hill where there would be a breeze at night. They would throw the grain in the air and the chaff would be blown away by the wind and the kernel would fall to the ground. Well, with a big harvest that Boaz has, he's spending the night at the threshing floor as well as other farmers or landowners would because they want to protect their harvest. They want to make sure no one comes in and steals that that they've worked so hard for. And Naomi tells Ruth, now this is your chance to go share with him what we'd like for him to do. 
And so she gives her dating advice. Verse 3 says this, wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Those are pretty good tips, right? Just, man, let me just tell you, ladies, if you're single and wanting to go on a date, pretty good job, pretty good idea to take a bath, uh, spray on some cologne or perfume, and change your clothes. Now, why the clothes changing is so important is it harkens back to... Um, King David in 2 Samuel, harkens forward, I guess, to King David in 2 Samuel 12, where David is mourning the loss of his son. And it says that he got up, bathed himself, put on oil, and changed his clothes. That he was in mourning clothes, and now he's showing, I'm past the period of mourning. As a Moabite widow, Ruth was likely wearing the clothes of a mourning widow. But Naomi is saying, now, bathe yourself, get freshened up, change your clothes from a mourning widow to one that's showing that you're available for a relationship. Plus, you're going to smell better, which is always helpful. You see, in seeking redemption, Ruth puts her past behind her. That can be challenging for us sometimes, can't it? To put our past behind you. I mean, sometimes we can be paralyzed by our past. I remember when I was teaching my son how to drive... Last year, he turned 16, and we're in the car, and I'm teaching him how to use his mirrors properly. And I said, son, when you're driving, you need to occasionally, maybe every, I don't know, eight or ten seconds or so, glance in your rearview mirror to see what's going on behind you, and then quickly look out in front. In fact, if you don't glance in your rearview mirror, it can be dangerous because you don't know if someone's trying to pass you. You don't know if you can change lanes. So occasionally, you need to glance in your mirror so you know um, what's happening around you. I said, but son, don't say fixated on the mirror. Because if you're fixated on the mirror, it can cause quite danger. In fact, I think some of the yahoos driving Western Kentucky Parkway are fixated on the mirror. They're just driving like they're focused on the mirror and not looking where they're going. Because if you focus on your rearview mirror, you're going to have a wreck, right? You're not going to see what's in front of you. And it's very, very dangerous. Brothers and sisters, I think sometimes in our life, some of us can get in a situation where we are fixated on the rearview mirror. And our entire thought pattern is focused on what's happened in the past. I remember when the kids were little. I wish it was like that again. I remember back before my loved one passed away. Back that job I used to have, back in the good old days. And some of us have a proclivity to live our entire lives in the past. To live our entire lives looking at the rearview mirror. And when we do that, it makes what's in front of us to be very dangerous. Now, it's important to look in the past. I mean, you can't drive down the road without at least glancing at the rearview mirror on a very systematic time period. But we can't stay fixated on the past. What Naomi is saying to Ruth is, I know you miss your husband. I know we love him. And we continue to mourn my son and your husband and my husband. But we can't stay fixed because continuing to look in the past can paralyze us. It's verse 3, the second half of verse 3. She says, now go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. I mean, this is the fourth level of advice and maybe the best advice yet. Let the man eat. Don't interrupt his eating. Take a bath. Put on some perfume, change your clothes, let the man eat. He continues, verse 4. And when he lies down, note the place where he's lying. 
Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I'll do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So pay attention to where he lies down. You want to make sure you're going to the right set of legs. There's a group of men here. They're threshing up at the place. Pay close attention to where Boaz is and where he's lying down. Now this picture of Ruth lying down, it's not a sexual picture. It's a picture of her showing submission. It's her going to the feet of a man and lying down, saying, in humility and submission, it's a posture of uh, of a proposal. In today's society, as you will get on one knee to ask for marriage, she's laying at the feet saying, I'm wanting to be led by you. Just wait for Boaz. He will tell you what to do. That's all part of Naomi's plan. Well, now we transfer to Ruth's proposal. Ruth's proposal, verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quickly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. You can imagine Ruth's there waiting. Is he asleep? Is he asleep? And finally, when he's asleep, she starts to walk very slowly and quietly to get over to Boaz. Some of you have toddlers or maybe toddler grandchildren, and you know what it takes to quietly sneak over to or from their bed at night. I remember my kids would always want mom or dad to lay down with them, and then when they fell asleep, you had to ninja crawl out of the room so that they weren't going to wake up. So Ruth is going very gingerly, quietly, And she finds the feet of Boaz and she lies down. She's uncovered his feet, taken the blanket off his feet. It's happening, folks. She's there. The man she wants to marry is there on the threshing floor. She's laying at his feet, a sign of submission, a sign of, I want to be under your protection. I want to be under your care. I want to be led by you. I want to be your wife. And we're waiting, looking, watching. This is the part of the book where you don't put it down. This is the part of the movie where you don't get up to use the restroom. You're listening. You're engaged. What's going to happen? In the middle of the night, verse 8, something startled the man. It was probably a woman laying at his feet is my guess. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Now, the word servant used here is a um, different form of the word servant that's used in chapter 2. In chapter 2, uh, Ruth calls herself a servant of, of Boaz, and it means uh, like a slave, someone who works for him. But the word servant here, while in English it's translated the same word, the Hebrew word is very different. It means more of a helper. I'm here to help you. And in fact, what Ruth is saying is, I'm here to be your helpmate. She's proposing, lying at his feet. Saying, humbly I come to you. And it's your future helper, your helpmate, Ruth. Now this is where it gets interesting. Because Ruth departs from Naomi's game plan. What did Naomi tell her? Go to the threshing floor, lay down at his feet, uncover his feet, and wait. He knows what to do. So that's what she does. She goes to the feet, finds the feet, uncovers the feet, lays down. We, we see he's woken up. He said, who is this? She says, it's Ruth. And we're looking at Boaz waiting for him to take charge. 
But in that awkward pause, Naomi, not Naomi, Ruth, just starts talking. She keeps talking. You have friends like that, don't you? That anytime it gets awkward, they just start talking. They just can't stand the silence. And if you don't have a friend like that, you might be that friend. And that's okay. Just own it. Just know, have a little self-awareness that sometimes when it's awkward, you feel like somebody needs to talk. This is what Ruth's doing. And so she just starts talking. Listen to what she says. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. This was a cultural significant way of saying, I'm a widow. Take me as your wife. Even to this day in the highlands of uh, northern Israel, when a Jewish man marries a Jewish woman, he will, in the ceremony, will take his shawl and he'll place it over her shoulders. As if a way to say, I'm bringing her under my protection. I'm bringing her under my care. This is my wife. And I'm going to protect her and love her. Ruth is saying, cover me with your shawl. Bring me under your protection. Bring me under your care. Take me as your wife. She's proposing. This is more than what Naomi asked her to do. And we're not sure what Boaz is going to do. I mean, the, the, the farm worker is proposing to the master of the, of the farm. The immigrant Moabite is proposing to the, the Israelite man. The, the poor widow is proposing to the distinguished Israeli gentleman. She's breaking the rules. Verse 10, he says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. He said, Ruth, you're a really nice girl. You're a really sweet girl. You're, you're a distinguished girl. You could, you could have a lot of these other men who are richer, who are younger, but yet you want to have a relationship with, with me. And now, daughter, verse 11, don't be afraid. I will do all that you ask. All the people of my town will know that you are a woman of noble character. He said yes. He said yes. I'd like to marry you too. There's joy on their faces. There's joy on our faces. And we transition from, from Ruth's proposal to Boaz's pledge. Boaz's pledge. And at this point, things are going incredible. I mean, we can hear wedding bells. They're, they've ordered the dress. They've picked out the colors. They've selected a wedding hashtag. They are ready to go. Until verse 12. Don't look at verse 12. Just close your eyes. You just don't want to read it. I mean, you're caught up in the hallmark moment. And then verse 12. Although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as sure as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. There's another man. There's another man. What do, they want to be together. It's like Romeo and Juliet. They want to be together, but something's telling them they can't, at least not yet. 
There's another man in closer relation to her who has the first choice, the first chance to redeem the estate of Elimelech. And Boaz is saying, you know, I'd love to marry you, Ruth. I'd love to take you and Naomi in uh, under my wing. But there's someone else who has the first chance. Can you imagine the rest of that night? As Boaz is sitting there thinking, tomorrow I'm going to town to tell them that I want to take Naomi and Ruth, the Moabite, into my home. And Ruth's line, you're thinking, in 24 hours, I'm going to be married. I just don't know who I'm going to be married to. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized and, and said, no one must know, he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also asked, he also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When he did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. He's wanted to preserve her dignity. Before it gets light outside, nothing sexual has happened. She's come in a very gentle, humble, submissive way saying, I'm here. I want to be under your wing. He has covered her with, her, with his shawl. And he says, I don't want anyone to know that a woman came. I don't want your reputation to be disgraced. So leave now while it's still dark. But before she leaves, he gives her measures of barley. Six measures. It doesn't say what the measurement is. So we're not exactly sure how much he gives her. But it's a parting gift. But it's a lot of barley because you says here that he hoists it up on her back. Now you may remember in chapter 2, Ruth herself picked up that 30-pound sack of grain and put it on her back. But this must be so heavy that he's hoisting it up on her back. Now, Ruth can pack some grain. Let me just tell you. Girl knows how to pack her grain. And she's got this shawl with the six measures of grain, and she's walking back. Now, here's what's really interesting. Really interesting. When Ruth, verse 16, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her. Naomi's wondering, how is Ruth? What did Boaz say? And, and Ruth spills the beans on what's happened. Now here's where it gets really interesting. This point that Ruth shares something that Boaz told her on the threshing floor. We've not heard it yet, but now Ruth is telling, you get this, Ruth is telling Naomi something Boaz said. And here's what she says. And she added, verse 17, He gave me these six measures of barley saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty. Now, why would that be significant? Where have we seen this word empty before in the story, the book of Ruth? Remember in Ruth chapter 1, 21, flip over there in your Bible, just a page over. It's when Naomi was in Moab and she returns to Bethlehem and people are saying, sweetie pie's back. And she says in verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She says, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back how? Empty. The Lord's taking it all away. I have nothing left. I lost my husband. I lost my two boys. The life that we are trying to create is gone. My retirement's gone. There's no, there's no man to take care of me in my old age. No son to take care of me. No grandson to take care of me. Oh, I was full, but now I'm empty. And here's what Boaz is saying. He's saying, Naomi, you're not empty anymore. Not only did Ruth bring back grain to Naomi, but she brought her hope. 
Folks, there may be times in your life when you feel empty. You feel like it's all gone. You feel like there's nothing left. But let me tell you, if you have Jesus, you're still full. You're still full. If you lose your family, if you lose your job, if you lose your bank account, even then, if you have Jesus, you're still full. And that's what Boaz is telling to Naomi. Daughter, woman, I don't want you to ever feel as though you're empty again. And if I take Ruth, your days of emptiness are soon over. The message to her and the message to us is you're not empty. Verse 18, then Naomi said, wait, my daughter. Wait until you find out what happens. For this man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And that's Boaz's pledge. If he won't marry you, then I will. It's not as romantic as it, doesn't sound as romantic as it is, but there we go. And so we see throughout Ruth chapter 3, we see Naomi's plan. We see Ruth's proposal laying at the feet of Boaz, saying, cover me with your garment. And then we see Boaz's pledge, I will marry you. I will take you. I will redeem you as long as the other man is not going to do it. But weave and woven throughout the entire story of Ruth 3, we see God's promise. In the midst of Naomi's plan, Ruth's proposal, Boaz's pledge, we see God's promise. Let me ask you a question. Who do you trust? Can we trust God? Really, can we? Can we trust God? There's a certain faith that Ruth demonstrates by going to Boaz. She goes to him and puts her life in his hands, not fully knowing what happened, what's going to happen, but she knows she can trust him. He's a good man. He, he, he follows the law. At a time of the judges, when everyone did whatever they wanted to do, Boaz is actually doing what God said to do. He's gentle. He's protecting her. He shows this love, this patient love, a protecting love, a pure love, a love that has a price. He's given her quite a bit of grain. And when she sees that man, she lays at his feet. And this whole intention of this passage is to point us toward the loving kindness of God. Would you just let this soak into your heart, not your neighbor's heart, not the person sitting in front of you's heart, in your heart. That God is patient with us. That he loves us with a pure and protecting love. That he extends his hand to the distressed. He reaches out his hand to the foreigner. He's generous to the needy. He's the master. And in similar fashion, when we come to God, we can trust him and show our trust by laying down at his feet. By laying down at the feet of the master. Saying, I submit my life to you. I'm asking you to take control. I'm asking you out of my humility, out of my submission, I'm asking you to redeem me. And we don't have to be we don't have to question if he's going to say yes or no because we can trust our great God. And when we're laying at his feet saying, I can't figure it out, I can't do it, will you cover me? My sin is great. 
My desperation is deep. My affliction is intense. Will you take me under your wing? Oh, great master, will you cover me? Because I can't do it on my own. I can't live on my own. In fact, I'm empty without you. And here I am at your feet asking you to cover me. King David would write in Psalm 31, 32, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. In 2006, there was a massive wildfire in Shoshone National Forest. Two wildfire firefighters were risking their life to help suppress the fire, and they were walking down a canyon area when this wall of fire quickly started to approach them. They turned and ran the opposite direction, but they could not outrun the flames, so they found a small place where a dry creek bed was that had little vegetation, and there they deployed their fire blankets these apparatuses that they would crawl into much like a sleeping bag that they would hopefully protect them from the flames. And over the next three or four minutes, as two waves of fire swept over them, they could feel embers falling on their bags. It felt much like, sounded like hail falling on their fire blankets. But after a few minutes, the fire passed and they crawled out from under their cover unscathed. They were protected from the fire because they had the proper covering. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you that the fire of judgment is coming and we will only survive if we are covered by the blood of Jesus. And when we become a Christian, some of you here today have not yet accepted Christ as Savior and you need to say, I want you to have a loving relationship Not with Boaz, but someone who's greater than Boaz. Someone who created Boaz. I want you to have a loving relationship with God, the master of the harvest. And how you do that is you come lay at his feet and say, Lord, I need you. I'm nothing without you. I submit my life to you. Will you cover me with your grace? Will you cover me with your love? Will you cover me with the blood of Jesus? Will you take me under your wing and cover me? Oh, great, wonderful God. And today some of you need to lay at the feet of Jesus and ask him, Cover me. Oh, we can trust him. Oh, we can trust him. And we can trust him because we see him weaving his grand story, his grand narrative through the entire book of Ruth. We can see the picture of what he's putting together as he weaves this giant tapestry of of the story of Ruth. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Corey Tin Boone. She worked, her dad um, was a clock repairman during the 1940s, 1930s, 1940s. And when the Nazis started collecting Jewish people and shipping them off the concentration camps, Corey Tin Boone's family started to house them, to hide Jewish people. She was a devout Christian, and they were hiding these people from the Nazis. Well, they Hid probably saved hundreds if not thousands of people's lives, but they were found out. And her family was taken to a Nazi prison camp, a concentration camp. And there in the camp, she suffered incredible hardship. She and her sister, she talks about the fleas in the bed. She talks about the hunger, the starvation. She talks about them having to work. They worked in a, at one time in a sewing uh, facility where they were sewing um, 
they were sewing uniforms for German soldiers. And she learned to sew from that time period. She talks about how God brought her through that situation. She was liberated from the camp for a chance to share his glory. And when she would speak, she'd show a picture of something that she had sewn. It doesn't look like much. It looks like a bunch of ratted rags tied together. You're like, Cory Ten Boone did that? Hope she was a better speaker than a sewer. Um, I mean, just thread going everywhere, tangled up, doesn't look like much. I mean, if that's the best she could do, then we're a little worried. But that's what Corey Ten Boone had sewed together. But the problem is that we're looking at her project from the wrong side. There's another side of her sewing. She was embroidering a crown. And folks, sometimes we look at our lives and it looks a lot like that first picture. All wrapped up in a big mess. Threads going everywhere. Doesn't look like much. How can this be anything? The problem is we're looking from the wrong side. And God is on the other side weaving and creating his glory through our lives. And we have to see from the other side, and maybe we will one day see from the other side what God sees, the way he's, he's scripting together our white lives for his glory. That's why we can trust him. That's why we can put our full faith and trust in him because we know God has a sovereign plan for your life, for my life, and it all ends up in a great tapestry that shows the glory of God through King Jesus. And so today I want you to know you can trust him by laying at his feet, by saying, cover me, because I know you're weaving a story, a grand story, for your glory. I ask you to stand as we go to a time of invitation and sing. But as you stand, my hunch is some of you, some of you don't need to stand. You need to lay down at the foot of the Savior, at the foot of the Master, and say, Lord, cover me. Let's pray, shall we? Father, you are a good, wonderful creator, God. And Lord, we owe all of our allegiance to you. Thank you for loving us with a pure, protecting, patient, priceless love. Thank you for being gentle and kind. A God who extends his hand to the weak, to the poor, to the powerless. A Lord that's told us if we come and lay at your feet and we cry out for you to cover our sin, that you will respond by redeeming us. You will respond by covering our sin and our affliction for your glory. And so, Lord, we ask you to do that today. For those who are here who have yet to do that, I pray in the name of Jesus, you will prompt them today to lay at the feet of the King and be covered by your blood. We thank you, Lord, for the blood of your Son that covers our sin. To the glory of Christ our King, we pray and we praise.